Yahweh, I just thank you for the amazing God that you are. And I thank you that you are a God that chose to reveal yourself to us through your scriptures. And it is through your scriptures that we can better understand um, how the Holy Spirit speaks to us and continues to reveal who you are to us in our lives. I just pray that you give us the ability to just allow the stresses and the problems and the to-do lists of the world that we're dealing with right now in our lives to just kind of fade to the background. Um, allow us to give our undivided attention to you. I pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal who you are to us tonight to give us a better understanding of your word so that when we re-enter our lives at the end of this night, um, we'll have a better appreciation of who you are and how you can speak into our lives and, and direct our lives and bring shalom to our lives. And so um, just speak through us tonight and allow us to understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The setting of Exodus. This is the second book, obviously. In the book of Genesis, God begins to first reveal himself as the sovereign God of the universe. God reveals himself as a unique God to all other gods. And so in the Genesis account, we talked about how the pagan gods, all the creation accounts that everybody's used to, the pagan gods are creating out of chaos, just like evolution today. There's nothing but chaos and disruption, and creation comes out of the chaos. Therefore, there is chaos in creation, and there's some kind of order depending on how it comes. Now, with the pagan gods, they bring order, but they can't bring complete order. They have a beginning and an end. There's a time that they did not exist, and there's a time that they died. They create the world by battling the chaos, trying to overcome the chaos, and that kind of stuff. God, Yahweh, shows himself completely unique in the Genesis account by the fact that it just says, in the beginning was God. He's already existed. He has no origin stories. And two, he doesn't battle some chaos monster. He doesn't battle the darkness. He doesn't do any of that. He just merely speaks, and things start coming into existence. And so God immediately shows himself as someone who, unlike the pagan gods, always existed, unlike evolution has always existed, and he's creating everything out of order. And the first three things that he does is he brings order to the chaos, he forms and fills the emptiness, and he brings light to the darkness. By doing this, he establishes an orderly creation that he can then enter into and he can rest in. And he calls his creation good. Now, the word good does not mean morality. The word good means that it is operating the way that it's supposed to operate in relationship to everything else so that it produces the most maximum life possible, that everything can then be content and satisfied so that when you enter into this good creation that works the way that it's supposed to, then you can be truly content and satisfied and at rest because there is nothing wrong to create any kind of stress or dissatisfaction or discontentment. And that's what he means. Now, it then gains a moral context because the idea is if you are operating in a morally good way, then you're not producing dissatisfaction and discontentment in other people's lives in your own life. But that's what the word good means. No other God has ever declared a creation good in any creation account. Even in evolution, we're not good. We're always trying to get to good, and that might take billions and billions and billions of years. So it speaks to these. So in that sense, because God created something good, he was able to enter into it, and he was really, truly able to rest. 
And we'll talk about rest, the Shavat, Sabbath, means when we get to the Ten Commandments a lot more. But it's the idea that he actually could enjoy everything and really truly say, there's nothing else that I really feel like I have to do and there are no problems I have to deal with. And that sense, he has created a temple inside of his creation. He then creates Adam and Eve in his own image, which means to rule and subdue, which means go out and make creation look like God. They are to reflect the likeness of God, his character, and they are to go out and they are commanded to work until the garden that doesn't need to be worked until, which means that they're to expand it. So he builds this little garden that's his temple, and he commands them to expand the garden. And as they expand the garden across the planet, they're supposed to make everything look like God, okay, in his image. So by doing that, he's made them king and queen over creation. At the same time, by placing them in the garden that is his temple that he dwells in, the only humans that live inside of temples are priests. So they're also made priests. So he has given humanity a unique spot because in all other creation accounts, humans were only created to be slaves and feed the gods. And they have no value or purpose other than that. Yet here in the Bible, he has given us the greatest sense of worth and value that there is. Unfortunately, he then presents us with a choice. You can either get your source of wisdom your way, just do it, have it your way, okay, I universe, um, follow your heart, or you can get your wisdom from me. And Adam and Eve choose an alternate source. See, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil is not bad. Knowledge of good and evil is wisdom. God wants you to have that. There's nothing wrong with wanting the wisdom. The problem was that they chose to get the wisdom from something else other than God. And therefore, they declared themselves self-autonomous. They declared that they were going to be a law unto themselves, and they were going to declare what was right and wrong, because they didn't need God to tell them that, and they didn't need to get it from Him. Therefore, they were going to get it on their own. If you really think about your life, that's exactly who we are. We're constantly always thinking that my way is better, and, oh, yeah, maybe we should pray now that everything I jacked everything up, and there's a huge problem. And that's our life. My way is better. The toilet paper rolls, my way is better. The way we do laundry, my way is better. <laughs> okay, All these things, from the nitty little things to the big, giant corporate things. And so that's their problem. Because of that, they lost their right to rule and subdue. They lost their right to be in the temple of God. So then in chapters 3 through 11, God shows how sin just rampantly flourishes. It not only affects the individual, it affects the family with Cain and Abel, it affects the society with the flood, and it affects government with the Tower of Babel. And everybody is always trying to make themselves God. Now, they may not literally think, I am God, but they do think, I can control everything, and if you've got to do it right, then you do it yourself. Okay, and so that's what all those chapters are showing, that the sin of man. So if you really want to go to it, Romans is following that same pattern, how God is good, he created everything, but then man constantly rebelled in chapter 3, and then he introduces the solution, which is Jesus Christ in chapter 3. And so then, in chapter 11, God introduces Abraham. And he chooses Abraham, who is a pagan Babylonian, worshiping the pagan Babylonian gods. And he yanks Abraham out of his culture and declares him to be a new people group. And he says, if you follow me, then I will do four things for you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And I will give you a land. And I will use you to be a blessing to the entire world. Meaning, I want you to expand. 
And so Abraham becomes the beginning of the garden all over again. He's going to choose Abraham and bring blessing to Abraham so that Abraham can be a blessing to the entire world, expand God's kingdom, and get as many people into as possible. And the first thing you need to understand is that there is no such thing as an ethnic Jew because they did not exist. God picked a Babylonian and called him later through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Your name will now be Israel, meaning God will fight for you, meaning that you understand that Abraham wasn't a Jew, And even though they will eventually be called ethnic Jews later at the time of Christ, the word Jew is not in the First Testament. They're mostly called a people of God. And if you read through the Bible and we get to the Exodus, you'll find out that a large percentage of the people who are called Israelites in the Exodus are actually Egyptians. And you know that with Ruth and Rahab and Naomi and all of that. They're all non-Jews. And so the idea was that he was not supposed to be ethnically just one people. He was supposed to be the people of God. Okay, It wasn't until later after the exile when the Jews were like, oh, we're losing our identity. We need to hold on. And then ethnicity started becoming a thing at the time of Christ. But that was not God's intent. And if you even go on, the gospel makes it very clear, all peoples from all languages and all nations. Okay, and so that's what he wanted to do with Abraham, to be a blessing to the entire world. And so he begins to reveal himself and teach Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the 12 sons of Jacob who he is. Now, two things happen here. They're being used by God, but they keep screwing it all up. <laughs> and so all throughout this, God is showing you that every single time these guys keep failing and failing and failing and failing and failing and failing, God is showing you that we are not the hope. We're not going to build the kingdom of God. We can't do it. But he's also showing you a second thing, that despite our failure, God continues to pursue us, and God continues to use us to redeem us and to redeem other people. And so the third thing that he's beginning to do is if you realize that we can't actually build the kingdom of God, but at the same time God is using us, then you realize that he's pointing to something that is yet to come. Now, you and I know that that's Jesus Christ, but they don't know that yet. And so when we get to Joseph then, they, God is using Joseph to save his family, his chosen people from annihilation from a famine, but notice that Joseph not only saves the Israelites, his own people, but he also saves all the people. So in that sense, God blesses the Israelites, but he also uses them to be a blessing to the entire world. But because of that, they end up in Egypt. And when they go into Egypt, the last lines of Genesis is, Jacob went in with his 12 sons and their wives and their children, and their numbers totaled 70. When we come to Exodus, Exodus continues that story. In fact, the first word in Exodus is not what you see in your English. The first word is the word and in the Hebrew. This book literally begins with and these are the names, which communicates to you that this is a continuation. And so when we get to Exodus, Exodus is going to develop three main themes. There's lots of themes in these books, and I'll be pulling them out. But there's three ones that I really want to, like, as we talk about things, hang your hats on these. The first thing that God develops is this idea of from absence to presence. And that functions in two ways. 
What's interesting is that God is very active and very dominant through the first several chapters of Genesis. I mean, Genesis 1, it's God spoke, God spoke, God spoke, and God coming down and judging in 3 through 11, and God speaking to Abraham. But then you notice that God begins to withdraw a little bit. Not that he's withdrawing his presence, but his direct in-your-face activity. In the same way that we don't have God like speaking to us and directly standing here with us, but we all believe, hopefully, that God is always here and always involved, just more in an indirect way and directly through the Holy Spirit, but not in a tangible. So God is there. But when Abraham comes along, he's, he's not speaking all the time like he was in the first 11 chapters. He only speaks every once in a while, and he shows up a couple of times in Abraham's life. And then when we get to Jacob, he only shows up a couple of times, and this time it's not even ver- verbally, it's through visions. And then when we get to jo- um, Joseph, he doesn't show up at all. Okay? And the idea is, we don't know exactly what he's doing there, but it could be the idea is that as he involves himself more and more in their life, he doesn't have to be as directly involved. In the same way as your children get older, you don't have to be such a hover parent anymore as they get older. You, you start withdrawing. But at the same time, you're always there any moment that they need you for whatever reason. And God begins to do the same thing. So he kind of becomes absent for a lack of a better word in a direct presence kind of a sense. So that when we enter Exodus, notice in the first two chapters, God's not there. Okay, and please remember, I don't mean God's not there. I mean like God's not specifically being mentioned and specifically acting acting and specifically talking. Because that's the other point that it's going to make is as you think it's happened, you realize, oh my gosh, he's definitely there. You just don't see him directly. And so the God is only mentioned once at the very end of chapter 1, and it's only God. And then he's only mentioned briefly at the end of chapter 2. Okay, And then when you get to chapter 3, God just comes rushing into the scene through the burning bush, and he's speaking very actively. And even that's just a little thing, because only Moses gets that. But then he shows up as a big giant pillar of fire, and he leads the people out so they all can see him. Then he comes down Mount Sinai as a big giant storm, and everybody sees him. And it's by far the most awesome presence of God that anybody in the history of mankind has ever gotten. And then... He has him build a tabernacle where he says, I'm actually going to put my tent right next to all your tents. I'm going to be your neighbor. And so we go from this sense of it seems like God is absent, but as you see him revealing himself, becoming more and more present, you realize he's always been there. And sometimes he comes in directly, and sometimes he's indirect. And we don't know why he chooses to do one or the other, but for whatever reason, he's always there. And that ebb and flow of his direct presence is always showing that he's always there. And so we're going to see that. The other thing is you're going to see this theme in two other ways. Not just the physical, direct, or indirect speaking, but also in the fact that there's this idea that Moses, when God comes to Moses, Moses doesn't. He's not worshiping God. You're going to see that. He doesn't really know God. He knows of God, but he doesn't know in an intimate relationship kind of a sense. And so Moses says, who are you? And then that's the exact same thing that Pharaoh's going to say. Who, who is this God? Who does he think he is that he can come in here? And that's the first thing the plagues are going to do. The plagues are going to reveal who exactly is this God. And the Exodus, 
The plagues and the exodus are going to give you the two sides of God's coin. The God of judgment and cannot tolerate sin, but the God who also is merciful and compassionate and redeems people at all costs. And that's going to, how he's going to reveal himself. The other way that you see this is through the name Yahweh. When we get to chapter 3, we're going to unpack what the name Yahweh means because he says, I am Yahweh. And the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and did not know me by this name, but I will reveal myself to you now. And so even though the patriarchs were worshiping God and they knew God, they did not know God and the way that he's going to reveal himself in the book of Exodus. Just like we may know God when we accept Christ, and we have a really way better than we ever known before, or when you first got married, you know your spouse. But you didn't know God or your spouse like you do now after all these years of being with them. And so that's what Exodus is going to do. Exodus is going to reveal a much deeper relational understanding of who God is. And this is going to become the book where God reveals himself more than any other book in the way that he does. And every other book is going to build off of this revelation of who he is. And so this is God from absence to presence. Now, I know this is like, oh my gosh, don't worry, because that's the whole point of going verse by verse is to unpack all this stuff. The second major theme we see is from bondage to bondage. Now, what's interesting is you're going to see this word abad, and abad is this word that can be translated to serve, to work, to be enslaved, or to worship. And this word is going to be multiple times. They abode Pharaoh, and Pharaoh enslaved them, and they served for Pharaoh, and they worked for him when they built the cities, and da, da, da. And you get this sense that they're enslaved, and this is not good. Okay? And they're being abused, and they're being oppressed, and they're, 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 their worth as a human is devalued. And so God is going to free them. He's going to deliver them from bondage. But what's really interesting is God is going to say, that I have delivered you from Abad working and serving Pharaoh so that you could go out and Abad and work and serve me. And what's interesting is he's taking them from one bondage to another. If you think that you can ever be free, then you're deceiving yourself. And we'll talk about that. You're always serving something. You're either serving your corporation, your boss, or whatever. And even if you work for yourself, you're serving some kind of your desire. I mean, if you're addicted to something or you've got a hobby or something, you've automatically allowed that to control you in some way. And we'll talk about that a lot more when we get to this idea. But the minute you have to realize the only power that you have and the only control you have is your yes and no. You don't really have control over anything. I think most of you, as you get older, you realize how little control you have over things. Your, your, the lives of your children, your jobs, your bank account, the, the state of the country. We don't really have control. Control is an illusion. The only control you have is what you say yes to and what you say no to. That's the only control you have. Because the minute you say yes to something, you've given, you've allowed that thing to have control over you. Even saying yes to this Bible study now, you've allowed it to have a certain amount of control over you because now it controls your Monday nights, okay? And it controls what you do, and it controls what you listen to. Now, you can give up that control by saying, I'm not going to come here anymore, but remember your only power was yes or no, 
Okay, you cannot determine the same thing with your children. You can say yes to having children, but you can't really control them. Okay, you can do your best. You can say yes to your job, but you can't control what happens in your corporation. All you, if you really think about, the only power that we have as humans is what we say yes and no to. And so if they say no to Egypt, they've got all this freedom now, which means they're going to automatically say yes to something else to fill that free time. And that thing becomes their God. It's the same thing. You go, you're like, whatever, you got the Saturday. The Saturday is your, oh, I get to do whatever I want. And you say yes to something, and then that thing controls you that day. And so this is the idea is that we have lost this in the modern-day Christian church. We often talk about what we have been saved from, but we don't talk a lot about what we have been saved to and what we are to become now and what we are to be and who we are to serve. And God makes it very clear, I have not come into Egypt to save you, just to liberate you into total freedom. I have come to liberate you so that you can serve me. The difference is Pharaoh was an uncompassionate, vindictive, cruel, self-serving God that oppressed them. But Yahweh is the kind of God who will eventually die on the cross for us in order to give us life. And so the question is not, do you have a God? The question is, what kind of a God have you put over yourself? And that's the theme of the entire Bible, is who are you going to bow down to and who are you going to worship? And you have to realize something. Here's the second point. You will never become greater than that thing that you worship. If you immediately put something above you and worship it, you can never rise above it because you're worshiping it, which means you can never become greater than it. So if you're worshiping sex or whatever, you can never become more than just that. If you're worshiping entertainment, you can never become more than just that. If you worship your job, then your job is going to be all who you are and your family is going to suffer and all that kind of stuff and you'll just become your job. And and we know that. We may not think of it that way in that theological term, but we've watched enough families and enough people and we've seen our life enough to know that if you take an honest look at people's lives, what they spend the most time doing tends to be the totality of who they are. Okay? The thing is, if you truly can make Yahweh your master and your God because he's an unfathomable, unlimited God that there is no end to him, then your potential in his will is endless. You can become so great. This is why Christianity is the best religion, not only because of the kind of God that he is and what he can do for you, but because of what he can also make you into goes way beyond what any other God can ever make you. Okay, and so this is that theme, theme that we're going to go through from bondage to bondage. But the one bondage is the world that wants to oppress you and destroy you. And the other one is a God who loves you so much that no matter how much you shake your fist at God or do your own thing or think you can do it, he will pursue you to the ends of the earth and he will die on the cross for you to give you life. And so the question is, which one do you want? And this is what I tell my students. You may walk away from Christianity, but you will never find any other God like this anywhere else. And you will never find any other friend or spouse like this anywhere else. You have to realize that you may be leaving what you think is narrow-minded and rigid, but all the other stuff is far more narrow-minded and rigid.
okay, in reality. And so this is what God is revealing. So that's the second major theme. The third major other theme is the God of covenant. And we've kind of seen that with Abraham, where God makes a covenant with Abraham and says, I promise you that no matter what, I will make you great, I will give you land, I will bless you, and I'll bless the world through you. But when we get to Mount Sinai and he reveals the Sinai covenant or the Mosaic covenant, you're going to really see what covenant means. And there's a difference between covenant and contract. A contract is when two parties come together and they both agree to do something in order to benefit themselves. Okay, so I got a, you got a contract with your credit card company. The only reason you want to be in a contract with a credit card company is because you want to use their money. You don't care about the credit card company. And the only reason the credit card company wants to be in contract with you is because they want to use your late fees and your lack of paying on time, if you're that kind of person, which, according to statistics, only 12% of Americans are not in debt, credit card debt. Okay, But you don't care about each other. A covenant is when two people enter into agreement with each other where they're both required to do something in order to benefit the other person and themselves. It requires a relationship. And you're not just interested in you and wanting a relationship, but you're also, hopefully, according to the book of Deuteronomy, become eventually more interested in that person and what you can do for them. And that's why there's only ever two covenants you ever learn about in the, in the Bible and even think about in the world. And that's your covenant with God and your covenant in your spouse. Okay? Because those are really the only two covenants. I mean, you have friends, but we don't usually make covenants with our friends. Okay? Our friends tend to be based on hobbies and geography. But only with your God and spouse are you making a covenant saying, Till death do us part, so to speak. No matter what, for better or for worse, we're in this because I'm in it for you just as much as me. And hopefully, if God's really working in your life, eventually you're in it for more for them than you are for yourself. And so this is what God is going to reveal. As he reveals from absence to presence, he's going to reveal. You have to realize that God is the only God in the entire universe that makes covenants with people. And that scene when he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And what he's saying is all the other gods were known as the God of the sun, the God of the storm, the God of the wind. But God says, I'm the God of people and relationships and covenants. And so he's going to mark himself unique to all our things. And so those are three really dominant themes that we're going to be seeing as we go through the book of Exodus. All right? Like drinking from the fire hose? <laughs> Don't worry, because now every verse is going to unpack that, and we'll get this over and over and over again. And this is the beauty of God. These tend to be the things he repeats through every book of the Bible, too.